We dig into Redpoint's T on Gen Z report. Amazon announced it'll be investing $4 billion into AI startup Anthropic, and many on-demand startups that saw huge valuations during bull markets have failed since. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. What's up with Gen Z? That's what Redpoint, a Bay Area-based venture capital firm, wanted to figure out. So the firm created an extensive report, which was released yesterday, titled The Tea on Gen Z. It looks into the consumer habits, career ambitions, outlooks on life, and much more from the generation of 13 to 26-year-olds. The report was created using answers from 268 U.S. consumers aged 13 to 26. They were asked 103 questions across eight sections that include identity, education, career ambitions, existential concerns, wellness, content and culture, finances, and purchasing considerations. Here are three quick highlights from the 98-page report. First, Gen Z has a spending power of $360 billion. Second, the generation is 21% of the U.S. population and 26% of the global population, making it the second most populous generation behind millennials. And third, 73% expect to work at only one to two different companies in their first 10 years post-graduation. Rather than explaining the report to you, however, I thought I'd speak with Redpoint's own Mira Clark to get a deeper look into Gen Z, my generation. This is Mira Clark at Redpoint Ventures. We are a Bay Area-based VC fund where I spend time across consumer, climate, and vertical staff. Mira, the report shows that Gen Z is pro-AI, saying they believe it will enhance their education and that it's the emerging industry they are most interested in learning about. Do you expect the next wave of AI startups to be led by Gen Z? And if so, how will they change the industry? Yeah, I think it's a great question. What we've seen with Gen Z is that they are both excited and honestly terrified about AI. I think their lifestyle or their lives overall have been quite volatile as it relates to climate disasters, public health disasters, you name it. And I think a lot of them you know, are tech optimists. They hope that AI can help enhance a lot of that, whether it's making them more productive in the workplace, um, learn better, or really find that sense of purpose or meaning online. And so as we see more and more of these application layer companies kind of come on the heels of a lot of the infrastructure momentum we've seen across AI, I'm quite optimistic in terms of what we'll see over the next 12 months, um, hopefully from Gen Z founders specifically. According to the report, 66% of female Gen Z respondents and 85% of male respondents say they would consider becoming a full-time creator. What impact do you think the creator economy will have on startups and VC firms? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? When it comes to startups, I think creators are in many ways their best friend as it relates to distribution, um, but also in many ways their greatest fear as it relates to those negative reviews. We found that roughly three in four Gen Zs look for reviews online and not only reviews, but user-generated reviews prior to making a purchase. And so I think a lot of these creators are really critical in terms of driving not only awareness, but overall conversion. Um As it relates to kind of what the workforce of tomorrow looks like additionally, I think there is probably a creator, contractor, whatever we want to call it, component. I think as these companies are able to do so much um, leveraging AI, they have much more intermittent needs, whether it's someone to build out best-in-class copy or help manage a creative process or what have you. And so I would anticipate that we actually have more of these creators or contractors comprising a greater and greater percentage of the workforce at these startups. Two-thirds of Gen Zers believe that it's somewhat to very important that their company's corporate practices take the environment into account. We covered a story yesterday that LPs are pushing back against ESG-focused investing strategies. How do you think Gen Z will change the way millennial and Gen X investors think about ESG? Yeah, it's funny. It's something we hear time and time again from founders, which is, why are you building in climate? Again, an area I spend a decent amount of time 
And one of the things we keep hearing is their kids, whether it's a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old, is bringing up this topic at the dinner table. As we kind of heard from them how they want to get involved, one of their biggest contributors, for better or for worse, is just raising awareness and talking about these things. And so I would expect them to continue pushing this topic to the forefront. I think what's interesting and what we found from our survey is that while they talk a big game and are pressuring corporates to take action, when it comes to their own environmental footprint, Gen Z's not doing a ton. It actually falls far lower on their list of priorities. And when we looked at behavior surrounding something like fast fashion, you know, we only had 27% saying they actually feel guilty when they make purchases on these platforms. And so, you know, I think Gen Z will continue to care about these topics. I think they're continuing to be a great spokesperson um, for a lot of these missions. But I also suspect we're going to need a lot of regulatory support and support from other stakeholders to entirely move the needle um, as it relates to the broader ESG conversation. Mira, last question. What's the biggest takeaway from the report that you think our audience should know? To me, the biggest takeaway from this report came down to the, I would call it, economic awareness of Gen Z. I think a lot of what the media or investors like myself have painted them as is this privileged generation and um, almost impulsive in the way that they act. And what we really found from our survey work is that they are critically committed to their finances, their economic opportunity over time, and really understanding you know, what lives they will be living and what lives they will be able to afford down the line. And so to me, it makes me quite optimistic about their generation. Um, I also think it creates a lot of interesting openings in terms of what can be built around the idea of affordability or accessibility for a generation that I think in many ways fears um, for their financial future. And so, yeah, I would say to me, that was kind of one of the biggest takeaways and something we are certainly keeping top of mind as we look for startups back down the line. That was Mira Clark, principal at Redpoint Ventures. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks a lot, Mira. Thanks for having me. Amazon and Anthropic are teaming up. Yesterday, Amazon announced that it'll be investing up to $4 billion into the AI startup. Amazon's partnership with one of OpenAI's biggest competitors seeks to join other big tech firms, Microsoft, Google, and NVIDIA, in the domestic AI arms race. The deal will consist of an initial $1.25 billion minority investment into Anthropic, with the potential of increasing it up to $4 billion. According to the funding announcement, Anthropic will now use Amazon Web Services, Tranium, and Inferentia chips to, quote, build, train, and deploy its future foundation models, benefiting from the price, performance, scale, and security of AWS. Anthropic's valuation is still yet to be set, but it, quote, would leave Amazon with a far smaller stake than the 49% ownership that Microsoft is said to have sought with its investment in OpenAI, according to sources to the Financial Times. To dig more into the details of Amazon's big investment into the generative AI startup, I spoke with Doug Clinton. Doug Clinton, co-founder and partner at Deepwater Asset Management. Doug, what does Anthropic have that Amazon would rather invest $4 billion into the company than investing that money into Amazon's own AI development efforts? I think they've already established they have one of the best foundational AI models. I think that's the short answer. And if you think about the race that we're in right now to build, you know, these sort of defining models, there's only a handful of companies that really are on the map. You have the big companies like Google and Meta. Obviously, they are self-funded. They have a ton of free cash flow to invest in these models every single year. You have OpenAI on the private side. They have a ton of cash coming from Microsoft. And then Anthropic and a couple other companies that are still private and privately funded. When Amazon, I think, looked at that landscape, I think they saw Anthropic as having kind of the best uh, model that wasn't already paired with someone else, OpenAI and Microsoft. 
and felt it made more sense for them to make an investment, a strategic investment, rather than try to play catch up. And they're probably a few years behind if they tried to do that. Can you explain what cycles are and why computing resources play a big role in these massive investments in generative AI startups? Yeah, well, and I, I can even take a step back from that. When you think about um, what exactly we're trying to achieve with artificial intelligence, we're trying to recreate essentially the function of the human mind. So we're trying to give a machine um, some leeway and latitude in terms of uh, creativity in, cer- in certain ways. Um, we're trying to get a machine to uh, think in some ways for itself. Obviously, we want to have control over it still um, as human beings as part of that equation. But the answer around compute is that the way that we enable machines to think is we use vast computing resources that are performing many trillions and beyond trillions of calculations per second that are guided by these models that are inspired by the human brain to ultimately calculate predictions about what the right answer to a question might be, you know, in the case of, let's say, a chat GPT or an anthropic Claude. So, you know, that's that's the importance of computing in this whole paradigm is that that is essentially the brain. The computer is the brain. The models are you could think of it as the networked structure of the human brain that actually helps the brain to function and come up with useful outputs. Doug, why does this deal make sense for Anthropic? Why take Amazon's investment? I think there's three reasons for that. One is, again, you, you go back to the landscape. Google has $100 billion of cash on its balance sheet. It'll generate $80 billion in free cash flow this year. Um, they are very well funded, and they're obviously one of the big players involved in this uh, foundational sort of model paradigm. Um, so reason number one that makes sense for Anthropic is they need money. They need a war chest to compete against the likes of Google, the likes of OpenAI. Um, and when you really think about the investment landscape, this is something I think is maybe underappreciated. There's not that many companies or investment firms that can write a four, five, ten billion dollar check. I mean, Microsoft's investing ten billion in OpenAI, Amazon four billion in Anthropic. There just aren't many firms or companies that could do that. And so the selection set in some cases for them is limited and they need the money. The second reason is the infrastructure. You just mentioned the compute earlier. All of these companies really need access to vast amounts of computational power. AWS and Microsoft with Azure are two of the leading cloud software providers in the world. So they have more infrastructure than almost anybody other than maybe Google. Um, Having access to that infrastructure for Anthropic makes a ton of sense for them because even if they raise the money privately from some you know investment firm, they'd probably have to go out and spend a lot of it on accessing compute. This deal gets them perhaps more favorable terms on uh, on that side of the equation. And then the third piece is distribution. It's great if you have a product, but if no one uses it, who cares? I think what we saw with Microsoft and OpenAI that's worked so well is Microsoft has built uh, ChatGPT right into the Edge browser. They built it right into Bing Chat. And they've given access to their hundreds of millions of users that use these products every single day. I think you're going to see Amazon do something similar. I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some conversational generative AI type tools within the Amazon app on your phone, maybe when you're shopping, you might have a conversation with Amazon instead of just a basic search in the future. And I think that having that experience in front of consumers is super valuable for Anthropic. 
That was Doug Clinton, co-founder and partner at Deepwater Asset Management. Great speaking with you, Doug. Always a pleasure. Great to be on again, Jackson. Beginning in 2020, the pandemic introduced the zero interest rate policy era, which allowed for many unconventional startups to receive sky-high valuations. Many of these startups were focused on providing a quick on-demand lifestyle to their consumers. Companies that sprouted up at this time include Spin, a rental scooter company, Joker, an online supermarket, and Instacart, a grocery delivery company. The rising tides caused by low interest rates meant that all boats were lifted, and with ease. Venture markets were experiencing all-time highs. At the height of the bull market, on-demand services for just about everything, staffing, healthcare, even a box of chocolate chip cookies being delivered to your door were being created. And we had multiple options to choose between. But then interest rates returned to normal. And many of those convenience-focused startups had to pivot or failed altogether. Some did survive. Spin, Joker, and Instacart. Spin was acquired by Bird. Joker expanded to Latin America. And Instacart just went public, although for a significantly marked-down valuation from two years ago. Most convenience-focused startups, however, did not survive. They had to close up shop almost as fast as they'd opened it. The lesson learned? The venture dollar isn't free. In most cases, a startup can't survive today if it can't generate returns on that venture dollar sooner. Our current era, defined by high interest rates, requires that founders embrace pinching pennies until venture dollars can flow freely again. To learn how the venture environment is changing specifically for on-demand startups, I spoke with Amy Nyakis and Sean Park. I'm Amy Noyakis. I'm one of the co-founders of the Antimus Group, an investment platform focused on financial system reinvention, and I am also its CEO. Hi, I'm Sean Park. I'm also one of the co-founders of Antimus Group, and uh, I am uh, the CI- group CIO uh, alongside Amy and I chair the board as well. Amy and Sean, in hindsight, were the years of investing during the zero interest rate policy era too good to be true? Was it foolish to deploy so much capital at extremely high valuations? Amy, do you want to go first? <laughs> I was actually going to pump that one to Sean, but <laughs> I love the kind of open too good to be true question. My partner always does very well on those. Um, too good to be true. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, for who. I guess it was too good to be true for for some of the uh, the companies that received that funding, although uh, not for all of them. It was only too good to be true, perhaps, if they were able to exit before the, the market paradigm shifted. Um, that said, I think that, um, uh, you know, harking back, Amy and I have both been around for a little while to an expression um, from Alan Greenspan, there certainly was a surfeit of irrational exuberance. And, um, you know, I think some otherwise very smart, experienced, um, and intelligent um, investors probably lost their bearings a little bit in this world, um, which was very competitive, uh, and that found its way into uh, what certainly in hindsight, but perhaps even with a, with a bit of humility, but even at the time, were you know extremely ambitious um, uh, valuations and, and capitalizations. Yeah, no, I I think I would just add that, look, early stage venture is meant to be hard. It's meant to be hard because if you get it right, the returns are extraordinary. And so I think in the last 10, even 15 years, the fact that some thought it was quite easy was the problem. That's what was too good to be true. And I think what happened in the last, certainly the last five years, but probably easily the last 10 is that there were a lot of folks coming into this market with zero to no experience in venture, zero to no experience in early stage venture, and frankly, um, very little understanding 
of how hard it is to be an early stage venture capitalist. And, and I think now that we've seen a lot of those guys disappear, the market feels a lot better. And for those of us who have been here for a while, who have a strong thesis, who have high conviction on the opportunities, it's going to be a massive opportunity um, for the next next vintage of funds. Thanks, Amy. And that kind of transitions into my next question. Many of the on-demand startups in the late 2010s no longer exist. Would you attribute this to a change in consumer habits, the nature of VC-backed startups failing, or something different? Yeah, there's maybe a little bit of that, but I think a lot of these, you know, I was going to add to what Amy said on the on the markets in general is that, you know, if you're a hedge fund or mutual fund manager and your your investment time horizon is like three months, you know, you don't have to factor in economic and macro capital cycles into your investment decisioning. If you're in venture or private equity where your investment horizons are definitionally multi-year, um, you have to take that into account. Um, not not only that, but, but you need to take that into account. And I think a lot of these on-demand businesses, a key um, input, a key, a necessary condition to their success was very easy and inexpensive access to capital. Um, that was the case for a number of years. Um, but to invest on the basis that that would always be the case through any cycle in any time, I think, um, you know, was, was imprudent. And, and, and that was a fragility that was sort of built into their business models. Yeah. And I, I think I'd add that the, some of the startups that, that you know, might have struggled recently or, or that are non-existent now, you know, the reality is some of them maybe never should have existed. I mean, there's a there's some element of it of, about, you know, how many num- how many versions of X but online do you really need? There will always be these category standouts who sort of have that kind of winner-take-all attitude and they become the category leader and they probably belong in the position they, they have. And I think across, whether it's FinTech or MediaTech or healthcare tech, we, we see sort of who those winners are now that the, the, the dust has settled a little bit. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if you weren't able to build a company that traded on more than just your brand, right, that traded more on, you know, traded on the fundamentals um, and, and didn't have, you know, growth at all costs was the name of the game for very long. But growth at all, long, at all costs is really capital intensive. And if your entire business model was about pouring money into marketing to attract and retain customers all day, every day, and the money dries up, then your business model falls apart, right? And so I think looking towards fundamentals, and I think if you pulled down a lot of these um, success stories right now, the ones that are still sort of working towards public market offering, working towards sort of their next round of growth, they had more than just a pipe dream behind them, right? There was a strong um, problem they were solving, a strong market they were addressing, but they were running the business paying attention to business fundamentals. And that's what an investor looks for, is quality business fundamentals that don't change regardless of where the market's up and down. Last question. How can startups that raise capital at high valuations during the zero interest rate policy era adjust and pivot to stay afloat and profitable in 2023 and beyond? So I think I think the key here is just take a lesson from other markets, public markets. Um, valuations go up and down. Multiples go up and down. And historically, certainly in venture, the nature, and it's built into some of the documentation, it's very hard to do. Um, the, the preferred shares that most uh, venture-backed companies issue uh, have clauses that make it 
um, very difficult to price uh, a subsequent round at a, at a lower price, but not impossible. And I think that seized up the markets a little bit at the end of last year, the beginning of this year. What we're seeing now is a, a, sort of an acceptation, sort of like the five stages of grief, where, you know, if you have a good underlying business, because if you don't, it's all moot anyways, and you should probably just give back whatever money you have left to your shareholders and, and try something new. But if your underlying business is good and your only problem is a, is a capitalization that's now out of market and inappropriate, well, then you need to recapitalize. Um, you know, if you need to raise more money, you need to raise it at a lower price, and you need to have hard discussions with your existing shareholders and, and, uh, and work um, collaboratively in good faith with the founders if, you know, if that's going to mean that they're going to be, you know, wiped out or very, very diluted. Um, you know, our, our, our sort of uh, um, rubric for that is if you were starting you know, this business, forget the existing capitalization today with these uh, metrics and these dynamics and this opportunity, how would, you know, what would an ideal capitalization be? Who would own what? And, and how much capital is business need? And work backwards from that. That sounds really simple. It's quite complex and it's hard work, roll up your sleeves type work. Um, but I, I think that, you know, that pragmatic approach is really the only way to do it. Yeah. I mean, look, the market's been struggling for some time now. A lot of startups are going to are going to fail for sure, and some will continue to struggle. Um, as Sean mentioned, seeing a lot of recapitalizations. I think the majority of the recaps, I think, are that we've seen the height of that. Um, as we look to 2024, we're really enthusiastic about how the M and A market can help the startup community specifically. Right. So if you're sitting in one of those scenarios where your paper is strong, you've got the good underlying business, you should absolutely be looking to to use that muscle for small acquisitions to add to the platform to grow inorganically um, as, as well as, as sort of focusing on your, your true organic growth. So I think there's a lot of that that we'll see in 2024 and generally um, sort of mergers of, of semi-equals or roll-ups that I think will will continue to be opportunistic um, for those that can still um, that still have a chance but have, have you know, need, maybe need something else in a complementary partner, but I think we can assume that the 2024 market for acquisition is still going to be very strong. That was Amy Nyakis, co-founder and CEO at the Anthemus Group, and Sean Park, co-founder and CIO at the Anthemus Group. Thanks so much to the both of you. I really enjoyed speaking with y'all. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.